0: Well, if you we can turn your Bible to Genesis 22, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. Let's stand and read the, the scriptures. <clears throat> now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on on Isaac his son, and he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid on him the al- laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took, his, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Let's pray. Father, this uh, event that happened somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 years ago, Lord, is uh, so relevant for us today in our culture and our time. And we believe that as men in this house, but we believe that your, that your word stands the test of time and the, that the issues of our hearts and our minds are the same from the day of Adam and Eve all the way to us now. And so your word uh, transcends culture and it transcends uh, any sort of psychological thinking. We just... We just come to you now with our hearts open and our minds ready to hear your word. And I'm not sure where everyone is in their life uh, in terms of their relationship with you, in terms of like uh, where they've come in this weekend on the houseboat, but I just pray that your your word will have something for all of us <coughs> and that you will meet us where we're at and give us what we need to hear to grow in our relationship with you and with other people. I look forward to our time, and uh, may your name be glorified in time again. <coughs> in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's great to be back here once again with all of you on the houseboat. It's always an honor and privilege to spend time with like-minded men uh, going through the Word of God. So, I want to begin by asking you a question. What is it in your life right now that you hold most precious and dear to you? Or what is the one thing you feel you could not or would not want to live without? Or let me ask you another question, what would you do if God asked you to give that thing up for the sake of your relationship with Him? What would your response be? In today's session together, we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham as we just read because he was forced to come face to face with the reality of these questions in his own life. So let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love Isaac, and go to let him Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The first thing I want you to notice here is the purpose behind God's command for the sacrifice. It was designed here as a test. It was designed as a test. He didn't ask him out of anger. He didn't ask him because he was trying to discipline him or punish him in any way. It says here that God tested Abraham. Now the Hebrew word for tested really it just means nesah. It means to try or to prove something. But it's usually in relationship to one's character or in relationship to one's faithfulness. So the natural question that we have to ask ourselves is why did God feel it necessary to test Abraham in this way? What was he trying to prove in his character, and his faithfulness at this point? And why did it have to be a son? And why such a, why such a drastic measure? Wasn't there any other way that God could find out uh, how faithful Abraham was? as some other form of test. I think as an outsider looking in, that's an important question to ask. Especially for those of you who are parents, as you can imagine how hard that would be to give up your children in <laughs> this way. But when you consider Abraham's history in relationship to Isaac, you'll begin to see why God would have asked this of him. And really the story for us begins in Genesis 12. And so I'd like us to turn there as a, as a group of guys. Turn, uh, starting in verse 1. Now we're not going to read this, but I'm just going to highlight parts of this. This is the Abrahamic Covenant. This is the first time God appears to Abraham when he's going to establish his covenant with him. And I want you to notice all the incredible promises that are contained in this covenant. First of all, in verse 1, he's promised land, which eventually became Canaan. In verse 2, he's promised a nation, which is the nation of Israel. Uh, he was promised divine blessing, and this was to come in two ways. In verse 2, he was going to na- make his name great. In other words, he was going to give him a reputation. And I find that interesting because in the three major religions today, uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, although they're very different in their beliefs, Abraham's name is still great in those three faiths. You can go uh, Ju- the Jews, the, the, the Muslims and, and ourselves all think that Abraham is something to be, someone to behold. Uh, the other thing he promised him uh, in the divine blessing was uh, basically protection. In verse three, he was going to bless those who blessed him and curse those who cursed him. And we see examples of this in Genesis of God's faithfulness to Abraham in those <coughs> ways. But of most significance in this covenant is the promise of seed. The promise of seed. Now Abraham would have understood this because God said to him in verse 2, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You can't have a nation without people. So he would have inherently understood that he was going to have to have seed. And in verse 7, he actually, God actually makes this very clear. Because verse 7 he says this, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So Abraham knew what God was getting at. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Well, at the time that these promises came to him, he was in his 70s. And at this point in his life with Sarah, he was unable to have children. They'd been infertile their whole married life. But here's the key. Of all the promises that God had given him, land, sea, or land, the nation, the reputation, the protection, the blessing, the only thing that Abraham fixated on the rest of his life until the day, day of Isaac's birth was the son. All he focused on. He was obsessed with having a boy, to the point that I think that no one else in the world in his day probably wanted a child more than him. To see this in Abraham's life, we have to now turn to Genesis 15:1 to get a picture of what it was like to be in Abraham's mind, in his thought life. <coughs> Some years have gone by since uh, Genesis 12, and uh, he's still childless. It, uh, God appears to Abraham in a vision, and look what he says in verse 1. Do not fear Abraham, or Abram at that point. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So you'd think the next verse, the response would be this: "Yes, God, I know you're a shield to me. You promised to be, uh, give me a, a nation. You promised to give me land. You promised to bless me, to protect me. All these things." Look what he says. He mentions nothing of this sort. He goes, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless?" <laughs> he's, he doesn't. He, he's connecting God's uh, reward to having a son. That's the highlight of what he wants to talk to God about, and it gets. It's so like uh, demonstrative in his mind that God has to reaffirm that He's still good for His promises. This is why, in verse five, after this, God takes him outside and says, "This now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able." And He said to him, "So your, sh- your soul shall your descendants be." So God has to reaffirm that He's still good for His promises, even though He hasn't had the, hasn't had the son yet. So you'd think at this juncture point then that. Abraham would be sitting back patiently and waiting God to supernaturally act in the situation with Sarah. But that's not what happens. Look in chapter 16, verse 1, Abraham still is childless, and so what does he do? He goes and takes Hagar, uh, Sarah's maidservant, as a wife, to have a child. And you know the rest of the story, how that turned out for them. Not so good. Now, I get it. Uh, It was Sarah's idea, so you might think, well, Abraham, that wasn't really his doing. Listen, Abraham could have stopped it. He could have said something like this. Sarah, honey, I know you're desperate for a child. So am I. But listen, I know God has appeared to me twice. In Genesis 12, he promised us a son. And just a few few years ago, in in Genesis 15, (laughs) he promised us a son. It's going to come through us. We just have to sit patiently. But he says, no, Sarah, honey, that's a good idea. Let's push the covenant along, let's push God's promises along, let's help him out in this and let's have this boy. And it turned out <coughs> not very well. I think there's two other incidents though within scripture that show Abraham's fixation on having Isaac. And these are found in Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, you can look them up later yourself. But birth are, both are virtually identical in the details, so I'll just summarize them quickly. But uh, in Genesis 12, uh, Abraham walks into Egyptian territory, and in Genesis 20, he walks into Philistine territory. And he recognizes that Sarah's beautiful, and he's afraid that when the kings see her, they're going to take her. And, it's, and he was right. Uh, when they get there, they did. But prior to that, he has a plan. And he says to Sarah, when we get to town, tell everyone there that you're my sister. But the reasoning for what he tells them is very interesting. He says, so that it may w- go well with me. Because uh, so they don't kill me now when you hear that yeah granted the text suggests that the reason behind why he didn't want to um, come up with a lie was just simply to protect his own life and he was fearful but I think if we look deeper we might see something else going on here I think this was Abraham's attempt to preserve the covenant God made with him and s- secure the promise of a son I'll give you two substantiations why first in both accounts Abraham actually shows no concern for the well being of Sarah It's so that it may go well for me that I may live. He never has any concern for the well-being of Sarah. Why would that be? My suggestion is this. Because God had told him that he was going to have a son. He never told him it was going to be Sarah that was going to be the wife of the son. So Abraham's sitting there going, Well, as long as I preserve my life, the promises can be still secure. Because he never said anything about Sarah. Right? Um... Uh, anyway, this is, that's my suggestion Secondly, uh, in both accounts God has to supernaturally rescue Sarah He appears to both the kings and basically says You're in trouble with me And the kings are terrified of what they've done And they quickly release her if God, Why would God bother to even rescue her If he never intended in the first place To her to be the mother of the covenant son promises? Abraham. This should, should have been a sign to Abraham that God intended Sarah to be part of the plan to have Isaac in the first place. So again, so God, Abraham's lack of concern for Sarah uh, and only protecting his own butt basically, and God's supernatural in rescuing her showed should have showed him that um, or shows us that um, Abraham has got the son in mind and is trying to secure the promise through his through his seed. So you can see now why God felt it necessary to test them now. Because from the timing of the first covenant in Genesis 12 to the birth of Isaac, about 30 years has gone by. 30 years with no promise of a son. So you can imagine now once he's born, how great of a place Isaac would have held in Abraham's heart and how protective he would have been over that relationship. So the question God wanted to know was this. To whom did Abraham's heart really belong to? Where did his loyalty truly lie? Where did he place his hope? Who did he place his hope in? And was he going to love God more than he loved his son? But I think more importantly, would Abraham be willing to demonstrate his love love for God by simply obeying his command, even if it meant losing that which was most precious and valuable and dear to his heart? I think that's a great question for us. I mean, who or what are the Isaacs in your life right now? Who or what has crept in or is slowly creeping in that is competing for your devotion to Christ? Could it be work? Would you find your identity right now wrapped up in your job? Is it a place that you're trying to gain recognition and some kind of worth? Are you so desperately wanting to get ahead that you've been habitually working long hours, and now your wife's crying out, saying, uh, "We miss you, and the kids miss you," all because you're trying to fill that void? What if God wanted to use you for ministry right now? Would you even be available for Him, or would you would you have to say no because you're so committed in all the long hours you're doing? I mean, what if God? What if your neighbor? You had a great relationship. There's a chance for relational evangelism, but you're so tired and so burnt out, you couldn't even take that on because you're so wrapped up in habitually working these jobs. How about your career? Perhaps you have a situation right now where telling the truth or acting with integrity will mean a serious blow to your advancement in the company and so you'd rather be devoted to that than what God wants you to do with integrity. How about hobbies? If you lost your hobbies, would your life come crashing down? <coughs> if you lost your athletic abilities, your health, your musical talents, your mechanical skills, would life come to an end in your mind? Could it be money, finances and possessions? <coughs> yeah granted, we may not be at the place of the rich wrong ruler where we just't we you know, were just completely devoted to that. 100% all in, but maybe there's other telltale signs that we're more devoted to those things than we are. How about in gen- like uh, overspending and constantly being in debt due to the need for immediate gratification? How about uh, generosity? Every time you go for coffee, you secretly hope that that other person just pays. When you go for lunch, you really hope that you're just slow to pull out your card because you're hoping that the other person buys lunch, because really you have this belief in your head that you'll be you'll be lacking if you're not that because you're devoted the fact that you're securing your own financial situation. How about tithing lately? Maybe tithing's not been as strong, just because, uh, and it's been minimal, just because you have this belief that you, if you do this, uh, your life won't go well. And so the, the ministry's been suffering a little bit because of it. How about your reputation? You know, in household situations, you're sold out for the Lord, it's easy to be like you know vocal and and to be a strong Christian in these kind of circles because it's a a safe environment. Then we go back to work and because of a reputation and fear of rejection we shrink back. And it's not because of lack of knowing truth. It's just fearful that other people reject us. And so we're devoted to the fear of man more than we are to the loyalty of God. I think of you teenagers in here too. Isn't it easy to be a strong believer in youth group? (coughs) Right, the easy in youth group to like have Bible studies and things, and you get into high school situations, and your your life may change very rapidly in social situations for the fear of rejection, because you want to maintain your reputation. Could be family. You know, your spouse, your parents, other relatives have more say and influence in your life and control your decisions more than what the Lord has for you right now. Maybe for you with your kids. Maybe it's your kids. You're just like Isaac and that you just, it's your kids that you're more devoted to. Uh, Dan spoke in this uh, yesterday just briefly in the area of like discipline. Right? It's interesting. Proverbs makes it clear that if you don't discipline your children, it says you hate your kids. But what do we do? We often hold back because we think we're loving them by not doing so. So we're showing devotion to our children rather than the Lord when we don't follow through. Here's the main point, guys, and I think you get it. If you stripped yourself of everything <coughs> that you're attached to and gives you any sense of worth, would you still be okay if you only had Christ? It might seem like an impossible place to attain, but there was one man in Scripture outside of Jesus that actually did write about his arrival at that state. The Apostle Paul in Philippians three eight writes this, Everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Perhaps I've missed some areas in your life in my examples of uh, things you've been divided in your loyalty to. I just want to give you time now for the Lord to speak about anything else he wants to say to you. So let's just have a quiet time of prayer for one or two minutes. Alright, men, we'll gather in and I'd encourage you in your devotional time to continue this conversation with the Lord if, if you feel need be. <clears throat> well, like all tests from the God, there's always a choice for either disobedience or obedience. As we pick up our story in verse 3, we can clearly, clearly see the path that Abraham recognized was necessary for his life. Let's turn back to Genesis 22, beginning in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place in which God had told him. On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. The first thing I want you to notice here is how quickly Abraham responded to God in obedience. In verse 3 notice it says this, Abraham rose early in the morning. My suggestion here then is, for the pre- when God appeared to him in this vision, it was probably in the nighttime. So he would receive the vision, and then he, he got it like that night, and he, the first thing he did was get up in the morning and go off and take the trek. I think that's an important lesson for us, because often when we know what God wants us to do, sometimes we become complacent. <laughs> we ponder these things, and we're slow to act, and often uh, we can be patternistically just outright ignore his commands. If we could learn something from Abraham here, even look at the magnitude of what he's asking in obedience, the magnitude of it. He doesn't even hesitate. He gets up and goes. May that be said of us that we are people that respond to the Lord's commands right when he brings something to our attention. And second key observation here I don't want you to miss is the length of time it took Abraham to travel to the sacrificial site. Notice in verse 4 it says, On the third day Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. See, this sacrifice didn't take place in his backyard. God had a, a good trek for him to go. And when you look on a map, you, you can see that he traveled uh, north, to, um, north uh, to, uh, from where he was located. Now what struck me about this, if you're on a three days journey, this is a long time to think a long time for you to think. So I just thought, I wanted to have you guys weigh in. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Think of the magnitude of what he's asking. What would be some of your thoughts for those on that three-day journey? What would be playing in your mind over and over again? Just yell out some things. When's God going to intervene? Plan B. Okay. what's next actually here? Is actually... Did I actually hear him tell me to do this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got this Did right. Yeah. That's yeah. try to reason a way out of it. That yeah, reason out? Try to figure it out. Yeah. I uh, other uh, things I had for myself where I'd probably uh, go from a mixture of inconsolable grief to like a high anxiety potential like fear, right? Be honest. Take your take the kids like those of your parents. Like if you were to think of losing your children right now I mean you'd have Tremendous emotion over that Right This is what This is what um, this is the, These are the things that we think Abraham be thinking of Well I'm not doubting that he had moments In which he experienced those emotions That you described I'm sure there were moments when he went back and forth on this But what's interesting is verse 5 Gives us insight into some of his predominating thoughts What he was actually thinking about Look at verse 5 Abraham said to his young man Stay here with the donkey And I and the lad will go over there And we will worship and return to you The we here is not a reference to him and his servants This is a reference to him and Isaac It's a reference to himself and Isaac You see what's going through his head? This shows a remarkable maturity of faith in Abraham And why he's a model for us See, he believed that no matter how this whole thing was going to go down, even if it meant falling through to the point of death, that somehow he was going to return home to Sarah with Isaac right by his side. Now, how he came to that conclusion is not given to us here. But thankfully, we have the rest of Scripture to help us fill in the blanks. And you can write this down as a cross reference in your Bible. It's Hebrews eleven nineteen, And in Hebrews eleven nineteen. He speaks about the events of Genesis 22 and he says, this is quote unquote from the author of Hebrews, he, Abraham, considered that God was able to raise him, Isaac, from the dead. In other words, what Abraham is thinking about during this time is resurrection, the potential for resurrection. You see, you see what's going on in Abraham's mind when you put this all together? You see, since God had demonstrated to him over and over again over the years through various experiences that Isaac was a son of promise and that through him the covenant was going to be fulfilled, if God allowed allowed Isaac to die at this moment and didn't do anything about it, then everything he had said up to this point and had been done for him would have been null and void. It would have been for nothing. Abraham's conclusion then was God was going to have to preserve Isaac's life even though he didn't know how he was going to do it for sure. But he knew he had to preserve his life. Because he had he, God had to be trustworthy to the promises he made. So he believed that God would give him back. Even if he took his life. And I think there's a huge lesson from Abraham here. right? Because Abraham believed that God's word was so trustworthy. That there was no way he could fall back on his promises. He believed his word was so trustworthy... He couldn't fall back on his promises But here's what happened then The result was something magnificent in his life I believe it gave him the confidence To trust the Lord and obey his command Because even in the midst of this Very difficult circumstance And without exactly knowing how God's plan Was going to affect his future He was was still able to walk forward in obedience And I think there's a huge lesson for us here From Abraham Because really I think our Christian walk Is all about trust I really do I mean I would venture to say That a good portion of our disobedience Is related to the fact that we don't trust him We don't think he has our best interest in mind But one thing we can bank on Is that God never asks us to do anything That's not for our best interest Or that's not good for us I mean has God ever failed you? Has he let you down? Can you think of anything he's asked you to do That wasn't for your better, betterment of your character Or your walk with him? I mean have you ever overlooked a wrong like it's commanded in scripture in 1 Corinthians 13 have you ever l- overlooked a wrong and it hasn't gone well for you relationally <laughs> have you ever not forgiven anyone and it hasn't gone well for you relationally have you ever been generous to someone and you've ever felt like it's not <coughs> gone well for you and you've lacked something again from Abraham we can learn that we can be we can trust the, the, the Lord at his word and he will not fail us in his promises. That's going to help us then when we're faced with decisions of disobedience or obedience because we can look back at his faithfulness and say, ah, he's been faithful for all these years in these different areas of life. Why not trust him one more time in this very difficult circumstance? I don't have to know the future, just like Abraham didn't know how God was going to intervene. I don't have to know the future, but I can trust him because he's faithful. As we sang this morning, he's a good, good father. Well, let's get back to our story now. So, we know M- Abraham's mindset going up to the sacrifice that, and what he was wrestling with in his mind. But what did, he, what did he do then once he arrived at the sacrificial site? Well, we pick this up starting in verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. You know, this passage is often taught by various people about... uh, about this being the foreshadowing of Christ's uh, death on the cross for us. And of course, that's an important theological truth that we don't want to miss. Uh, we, we understand this from the passage. Now, I was tempted to go verse by verse and just walk you through it, but I thought I would just take the whole section, the whole text actually, the whole chapter we've just read, and just give you draw comparisons between the sacrifice of Isaac and the sacrifice of Christ. Just use the whole text to do that. And I want to first start off as the comparison between Abraham as father and God as father. There's some really cool observations here. Let's just begin in verse 2. Notice he says here that he says, Take your son, your only son. Remember what is written in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, (laughs) that whoever believes in him should not perish. You know what's fascinating about that? Was that, was that Abraham's only son? What about Ishmael? <laughs> because why? Because Isaac was in the, the only son that was the son of the promise. He's the son of the covenant. So from God's... Ishmael would never have been born if Abraham had trusted God faithfully through the whole promise from Genesis 12 onward. How about the comparison of the love for their sons? Look in verse 2. Take your only son in whom you love. Remember Mark 1.11? In the the baptism of Jesus? and the transfiguration? A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. How about the willingness not to withhold their sons? In verse 12, Abraham has them laid on the altar. And he's willing to give them up. In Romans 8.32... It says this, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for his all. And finally, the fathers in this passage were the the, the ones to carry out the judgment on their sons. In in 6, verse 6, it says here that Abraham took the knife and the fire in his hand. Implements of judgment. And in, in verse 12, we see him going to stretch out his hand to slay him. Many of us think that the Romans executed Jesus, or the or the Jews obviously the Jews as well, because the Jews are the ones who told you know got the Romans involved. None of this would have ever happened if it wasn't God's idea in the first place. It was the Father's idea to slay Jesus Christ. Isaiah fifty three ten. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was God's idea, not the Jews, not the Romans. They were just the implements in p- carrying out God's plan. How about the comparison between Isaac and Jesus as the son? It's very interesting that the lo- location of the sacrifice in verse 2 is Mount Moriah. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, it reads this. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Babylonians. But Herod's temple replaced it. Jesus, at the crucifixion on Golgotha, was walking distance from the temple. Uh, This is my hunch. I can't prove it. It's just. But I'd like to ask God, this in heaven. I'm gonna guess because that He was probably Isaac was sacrificed on Golgotha that day. (laughs) How about the uh, comparison? They both carried wood. Verse six. Who's carrying the wood? Not Abraham. Isaac is. John 19, 17 Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull and there they crucified him. How about the comparison of both of them being an offering for sin? Verse 2 describes Isaac as a burnt offering. And the details of the burnt offering are laid out in Leviticus chapter 1. And the key observation in that passage is that the burnt offering is an atonement for sin. An atonement for sin. And I don't have to tell you (laughs) all the New Testament passages that speak about Jesus being the atonement for sin. And finally, they are both willing to subject themselves to the death under their father's hand. Did you notice there's nowhere in the passage where Isaac is struggling against his father? There's nowhere that suggests that he's putting up a fight. John 10, 18. Jesus says, No one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord I have authority to lay it down And authority to take it up again This is him speaking about his own life Now just for fun I thought I'd talk about Isaac's age here I think we're a victim of Sunday school And coloring books When you think of Isaac's age You probably think of this little, little boy this little Maybe even an infant And he's carrying a little cloth And he puts him on the thing And he's crying and going goo goo And all that type of stuff right? Or maybe he's a little boy like 4 years old I'm going to suggest that he is a grown man. And here's why. In Genesis 17, 17, Sarah is 90 years old. In 23, verse 1 of Genesis, Sarah dies at 127. If the events of Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, and the very next chapter, 23, is a short time period, Isaac is at maximum age 37 years old. So at the very oldest, at the very oldest, Abraham is 37, right? At the very youngest, he has to be a strong teenage boy. The observations in the text make it obvious he can survive a three-day journey, walking with his father. He can carry heavy wood, and th- finally, he says to his dad, "Where's the burnt offering? Or where's the lamb for the sacrifice, Dad?" He understands. He's cognitively aware and an ability to understand a substitutionary atonement. So he's obviously practiced this in his life with his father because he knows about it. So at the very least, he's a teenager. But at the very most, he's 37. I'm going to ask God this question in heaven because this got my head spinning. How old was Jesus Christ when he died? 33. I'm going to take a guess that I think I know how old Isaac was when he went to the, <laughs> to the sacrificial site that day. And that's the question I'm going to ask the Lord. Okay, so here Abraham is with probably a mixture of fatigue from the three-day journey on one side and adrenaline on the other. His son Isaac's bound on the altar who he so desperately loves and the moment of truth it finally arrives and his arm is stretched out and knife's in his hand. He's ready to strike and just about as he's going to bring the blade to his throat, a voice calls out from heaven. and He says this in verse 11 The angel of the Lord came to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What I find interesting here is that there's nowhere in this section that records Abraham's reaction to the voice. Nothing in the text that talks about his relief. Nothing that suggests he was joyful and danced around the altar. N- maybe he, nothing about it, whether he just broke down in absolute exuberance or with tears of joy. But what is recorded is God's reaction to the situation. He says, now I know that you fear me. When God made this declaration, he wasn't saying this, now Abraham, I get it, you're deeply afraid of me. Fear in the Bible has something has to do with reverence for someone. It's to, it carries the idea of respecting or admiring or being in awe of someone. So what God was saying is, now I know that you, that you deeply admire me and that you hold me in awe and wonder. But notice how God knew that. Now, I get it. The text says, because you not, did not withhold his, your son. But look deeper. What's really going on here? God's co- God commanded him to carry out something that, uh, which was to, to take his son's life. This was an issue of obedience. An issue of obedience. Would he <laughs> obey or would he not? So by the fact that he obeyed him, and, and, and he says, you, now you fear me, we know that to fear God is linked to obedience to God. So if you say to me, how do I know you fear God? I'll know you fear God by the way you obey Him. So you can say it all you want with your mouth. I will know if you fear the Lord by the way you walk in accordance to His ways. That's interesting, because you remember what Jesus says in John? If you love me, you will obey me. Love then, fear, fear can be interchanged then with love. I think what God is saying here is, now I know Abraham that you love me supremely, not that you didn't love your son. Verse two: I take your son whom you love, but you have, you have not withheld him, so you love me supremely above all. Abraham passed the test. I want to f- conclude uh, just with a story of uh, how this uh, unfolded in my life just recently, and like you I've had many tests in my life and I'm only bringing this one up because it's the most recent <laughs> and it's nothing like the sacrifice of Isaac um, in terms of magnitude uh, but it fe- feels like it based on my area of weakness that I would spend you know like the areas of where am I divided in loyalty it feels like it based on my personality so if you were to ask me Andrew what's the one thing that uh, that uh, has you divided in loyalty that would make you fearful I would say it's the the issue of the need for man's approval okay I want you to like me I want you to respect me and so my tendency would be to make sure I do anything impossible so that that relationship was maintained the problem is is that when you stand up for the Lord you're going to have to be rejected quite a bit because he didn't die because he was popular. He died because he was uh, he ruffled feathers. Well, as a Christian, we're going to ruffle feathers. So you can see if you have a, if you, if your number one area in your life is reputation or needed for man's approval, it can be very difficult as a Christian. So what happened to me was I went to a massage therapist about a month ago, and uh, I've been building a relationship with him. And I knew him from years past because I used to do that myself as a as a job. And so. Um, I go to see him and uh, go a couple times and this is like my third time there and, he's, and at the end of the appointment he goes, oh, I'd like to give you a discount and I'm like sure I'm in for a discount, that'd be great and so I was expecting like, uh, he called it a Chinese discount, I didn't know what that exactly meant but I thought okay, whatever you, <laughs> however you want to phrase it, I'll take it so what he did was clever, he asked me if I had medical coverage and I said I did so what he did is he charged me the full price for the, 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 the treatment but then he added ten dollars to the to the, the receipt. So you see what happens? I pay him the eighty bucks, I get a receipt for ninety. So I go to to so Sun Life and I claim that and I get ten dollars extra in my pocket. Okay? I didn't know this was going on. I was just expecting like this discount. So when he asked me for full price, I was like, this is kind of weird. I don't know I don't get how I got the discount, but whatever, I didn't make anything out of it. When I got home I realized what had happened. Well, I was like, Lord, what am I gonna do about this? Because I know this is crooked. If some life found out about this, like this is not, this is not right. So I wrestled through this like for a month because I wasn't going to go back. I didn't need to go back to him right away, so I waited. But I thought about this off and on for like a month, and I was finding time for my next appointment. And I was rehearsing in the car how I was going to speak to him. Now that sounds easy for many of you. You just walk in there full confidence and do it. For me, because I hold the man's approval so tightly. It's a scary moment and my head plays all the worst case scenarios. I'm done as a client, Uh, he's going to laugh at me because I'm going to tell him I want the discount and say what's wrong with you, like the government's crooked anyway, who cares, like they screw you so you screw them, that kind of, all the scenarios went through my mind. And I was tempted to just walk into the room and just at the end of the treatment just throw $10 on this table as a tip. (laughs) <laughs> to make up for the difference, right? That's what I wanted to do. I had it all planned Probably. out. I said, here's 10 bucks for a tip and not tell them. And I thought, like the Lord was saying to me, no, Andrew, you have to tell them why you can't do this. It's not enough because this is a testimony time. So I, I, through the treatment, I'm going through this and I'm dreading the hour at the end and I come to the end of the hour and I sit down and I like, okay, God, like I gotta honor you. And so I said to him, I said, listen, I really appreciate this uh, offer you gave me last time for this Chinese discount. I said, but he said, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian man, and my conscience just won't allow me to do this. He said, I'll tell you what, why don't you write me another receipt for 70 for today, and I'll pay you $80 for the, for the full pop. And he goes, no problem. No problem. But m- for that month, that wasn't the answer I was rehearsing in my head. <laughs> right? But again, you get, you guys, like for m- most of you in here, you could walk in there, and that would be like nothing. Like, it wouldn't even bother your conscience, because you don't hold that dear to you. That doesn't bother you. But for me, that's my Isaac. Now I know where that comes from. I know like, from what years of my life that was shaped in my life. But that's the one area that God still has to grow in me. But He puts you in tests. He wants to see where your loyalties lie. So let's get into some lessons here. The first lesson is this. That God tests us for the purpose of proving something in our character. The purpose of God's test is to prove something in our character Tests are not designed to make you fail it's, He has your best interest in mind He just wants to mature, your, mature you in your faith This is really cool After my sermon yesterday morning We had this massive debate around the table About some of the things going on in the sermon And I pulled up Deuteronomy 8.16 Which I added to the notes this morning Listen to this, this is what God said in the wilderness he fed you manna with your father, Which your fathers did not know That he might humble you And that he might test you Now listen to this To do good for you in the end <laughs> To do good for you That's Deuteronomy 8 yeah Found it yesterday just around the discussion table I was like, thank you Lord for that <laughs> That's perfect timing, right? They're not designed to make you fail To embarrass you To like hurt you He has your best interest in mind and with that some of you might be thinking of James chapter 1 Consider it joy my brothers Whenever you face trials of many kinds Because you know that the testing of your faith Produces perseverance Let pers- perseverance finish its work So that you may be mature and complete Not lacking anything So again tests are to help you Fill in the, vo- the gaps in your faith that, you, that God knows that you don't have that, But he knows he wants for you So you can be more like him In the way you uh, look And how you live out your life Again, his ultimate goal is to conform us to the perfect image of Christ. This is why I love Abraham so much in the test. How how mature is this guy at this age in his life? So it, it, so he's seventy when the when in Genesis 12.1. Okay, if I'm right in Isaac's thirty thirty say thirty years old 33, Thirty, that's sixty years. Sixty years. He's a mature believer, but God says there's still more work that needs to be done in your life. There's still more work. You've got more, there's one area. You've grown. That's why the whole thing. Now you fear me. That struck me. Now you fear me. What do you mean? What do you mean, God? Now haven't I proven to you that I feared you? I left Canaan. I've done everything you've asked of me. I've screwed up on the sun thing, but I've, everything else I've been brilliant at. Right? Okay, maybe the sister. No. <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. He's like, now you know. Now I know you fear me. I'm like, haven't I proven that to you? God's like this. You haven't proven it in this one area yet. <laughs> There's still more growth that you need in your life. Now, when you realize this, wouldn't this change your prayer life? What do you and I usually do in the midst of trials and struggles? God, please end this. Please get me out. What if we're praying this way? God, can you reveal to me what I'm supposed to learn in this test? Because I must be lacking something that I need to know. (laughs) It's through our testing of our faith that our character becomes complete and we can be used by God in ways that we were not expecting. Second lesson. Remembering that God's word is trustworthy and that He is faithful to His promises can be a tremendous catalyst in producing obedience in us. Remembering that God's word is trustworthy and that he's faithful to His promises can be a tremendous catalyst in producing obedience in us. All tests of God, remember church Or guys, <laughs> I'm so used to being in church All tests will bring us to a place Where we have a choice to disobey or di- obey Knowing that God is trustworthy in his word That he won't fail us And he always fulfills his promises In those moments when we're tested And we want to disobey him Because we're, we're getting tested in areas that are we hold dear rem- Look back at his faithfulness Look back at what he's done for you and in those moments remember those things as a catalyst at helping you trust them now to obey them the things that you're holding dear yeah remembering that God's word is trustworthy and that he's faithful to his promises can be a tremendous catalyst in producing obedience in us that's what got me through with the massage therapist honestly what I was rehearsing in my mind was this God I have disobeyed you so many times in my life it's always gone wrong for me and I've always had to the, come back to you confess and make things right You've never let me down. Why would I not stand up for what's right now and do what is right? It was remembering what he's done for me that helped me be able to have confidence to go and do the right thing with this therapist. So again, in the moment fear grips you and anxiety might grip you, go back to the faithfulness of God. Think about what he's done and how trustworthy his word is to help you move forward. And finally, the last lesson, Very short, actually. To fear God is to obey God. To fear God is to obey God. Now that I know you fear me because you not withheld your son. I told you to go sacrifice him. You went and did it. Now you've obeyed me. Now I know you fear me. There's a direct correlation between the two. Well, I know I've... uh, said a lot and I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts and uh, dive into a conversation with you.